in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. I'm Nico. I'm Ben. And you're listening, as ever, to the Tiny Bookcase. However, as ever, we've (laughs) got something a bit different for you this episode. There will be stories, two of them, one each. But this is a prelude to what's going to be going on in November on the Tiny Bookcase. We're going to be taking part in NaNoWriMo this year together and podcasting the whole experience. Now, this will be my first time taking part. Ben's second, if I'm right. So, should we have a quick run through what it is and how we'll be doing it? Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So, NaNoWriMo was, is, um, well, it's short for National Novel Writing Month. Um, and it's uh, originally started in San Francisco, so it's an American thing uh, in the 90s. Um, I guess that's why it's National Novel Writing Month. But uh, anyway, I did it. I did it last year, so... It's uh, irrespective of country borders, so you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> and the idea is to write a novel in a month by doing a little bit each day um, for all of November. That's so quite intense, isn't it? It, it? It's intense. Like it's pretty unrelenting. Like thirty days. Um, the The official word count for the challenge, or however you want to phrase it, is fifty thousand words. Now I'm and... just gonna I'm gonna look them up. Because I know there are there are numbers knocking about for this, aren't there? Of how long different types of book are. Oh crikey! I mean, you'd, you'd be at, you'd be at that for ages. But basically, <laughs> something like a fancy novel would come in at maybe call it 100, 110 or thereabouts. Yeah. The, the problem is that like the publishing world changes what it wants and what sells and all that um, quite a lot. So I think the different genres have different lengths and. And all that, but fifty thousand words is still a big chunk of whatever you're, whatever you're writing, absolutely no doubt. So, you're well on the way to having a having a novel, like a first draft of a novel, if you've written yeah. fifty thousand words. I'm just reading a thing. So anything over forty thousand words can fall into the novel category, but fifty thousand is considered the minimum novel length, which I makes those ten k, what just a misnomer. <laughs> what does that mean? And apparently anything over 110,000 words is considered too long for a fiction novel. Mm. Uh, even though, you know, Return of the King's got 175,000 words. I mean, how long is Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones must be 200,000 words or something. Oh, it's... God. That's, I'm going to find out. It's, it's weird not having... We're having Google as our guest today, I think. That's what's, that's <laughs> what's happening. Just cut it together so it sounds like we've got these numbers just straight to hand, you know? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but it's... um. Like 292,727. 300,000 words. And like industry standard says no. Like, Storm of Swords is 414,000. George Martin can can like bust out a big novel every 15 years or whatever. But it, <laughs> it's crazy. But I'm just looking at my bookshelf now. Like there's nothing on there that's 50,000 words or 40,000 words. No. Not a chance. I mean, I, I, t- I would. Has to guess that most Pratchett novels are well over a hundred thousand words. I I looked up Nightwatch actually because that's like I think ninety four thousand. Right. Okay. So around, but still like with fifty thousand. That, that words, is a shorter one. It's yeah, 
But with 50,000 words doing this, you put a big dent in it. You've certainly, it's a statement of intent. Yeah. And I think, and I think the big thing that you've done is teach yourself to write every day. They say that it takes a month to build a habit. Yeah. And if you're writing every day for a month and yeah, sometimes things get in the way and maybe the weekends don't get whatever. Um, you've basically built yourself a creative writing habit by taking part in this. If you see it through to the best of your abilities and the best of your time constraints. Yeah. Cause that's the other thing. Like if you've got, um, you know, a, a very demanding job, then this is very hard to do. Like I, I do know of people that have had, as I say, demanding jobs and done this. Um, so it, it can be done, but I don't think the point of it is to beat yourself with the word count stick every day. The point is just to give it a go every day. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, those gamble aware adverts when they say, when the fun stops, stop. <laughs> it's like that, isn't it? <laughs> well, apparently half a million people just over uh, gave it a go last year. It can't be all bad then. In the 2020 thing, which is which is pretty wild. I was one of them as well. So I got um I got something like forty eight thousand words or something. That is a lot uh, of words. It's a lot. It's a lot of words. And like the main thing that that really it really drilled home for me was that you can't second guess yourself. Yeah. Because we've we've had so many people on the podcast and they're they're really into uh really into what they do and all of them have to have have had to find a way to put that together that first draft, like yeah. get over that perfectionist streak that means that they can edit something 50 million times and it still not be just right for them we've had people that have like canned hundreds of thousands of words of books because they didn't I like can't them. even imagine so i guess it is a bit of a dangerous habit that this nanorimo thing is getting people into but at the same time like everyone that we've spoken to on this podcast loves writing and loves what they've put out there and is very proud of what they've done and it's really exciting um to give to be giving it a go yourself um I, I really enjoyed it last year and then over the course of the year like whilst we've been doing this tiny bookcase um podcast that those sort of forty eight thousand words have grown to about a hundred thousand for me That's um, amazing yeah well it, but it's but it's a lot of it's still that that first draft mentality yeah of um it just needs to be down the story needs to progress you can't, we, uh, you can't stop. You can't. You can't edit. You've got to just push. We have a really similar thing in music that we call demo love, right? Which is that when you're writing a song, you'll keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding stuff because you get used to the track that you've written, and you go, "Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we put a little fill here, or if there was a really high note here, or if it did this, or if it did this?" And you end up with these massively bloated songs, and it's why producers are so good. Because you play them the song and they go, no, that's good, but why have you got all this going on? What's what's mm. this? And why why are you playing four rotations of the riff after the first chorus when you could have two for the same effect? And it's just, I, th I think that it sounds like that first stage of you just keep adding and adding and adding and adding. And then eventually it's scary because it's your baby, but you will have to take a knife to it. Don't take a knife to your babies, anyone listening mm. at home. <laughs> But I, I said I, I think you you're probably spot on, but I think that's a problem down the line for most people. Yeah. I think most people that are, that get into creative writing, whether it's flash fiction, short stories, novellas, whatever, like novel serializations, novels themselves, big series, like 
that that impetus to start that excitement of the project wears off pretty quickly when yeah. you reread a paragraph of what you just wrote and it's garbage oh no <laughs> don't tell me that i won't do it well, no thing. i have to do it we've i've just committed on on the podcast well that's the thing the point of it is to is to not look back you've got to yeah you've got to achieve the word count before you can start screwing around with it um, and I found it to be very useful because obviously I've done bits and pieces of writing in the past and we've done yeah. we've written a lot of short stories for this. Um, but in particular, I felt that just the discipline and the devil-may-care attitude of just putting the words in every day yeah. or, or thereabouts um, was really helpful. It was really helpful, yeah. See, this is exactly the sort of thing I would normally do, but I haven't done it. So... Do you know how many words we've written each, roughly, for the podcast? Oh, God, I've got no idea. How many stories have we written? Bloody loads. Answers on a like uh, stamped envelope, guys. I think there's probably around 40 stories. Crikey, so we've probably done 60,000 words, give or take. Crikey, yeah. Um, That's yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, I would say. But, in, you know, in little, in little bursts, like, one of the things, one of the differences here, this is like an endurance thing, is that you're, you're yeah. building a massive story. Like, it's so long. Like, imagine if all of those stories that we've written were tied together. Like, it would make it, it makes it harder. Like our own MCU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, so, that's sort of what it is, and, and my outlook on it, and I think what their outlook is yeah. on it. Um but it's important to note that if anybody's listening and actually wants to take part, you can totally do it. It's it's free. Um, you just have to go on their website, and you don't even have to go on their website. You can do it yourself, obviously. Yeah. But if you do, if you do create an account on their website, they have a really helpful like tracker, and it helps keep keep you a little bit accountable. And you can say what the name of your project is. And there's also a really active community on there that that chats about uh, writing workshops and. All, all that good stuff. It's all on there. I didn't actually do any of that last year, but oh, I probably no. will be doing this year. They um, uh, can all chat to us on Twitter as well. Reach out and tell us I've done this much uh, and tell us off because we're probably not writing enough. Yeah, By we, I mean your, me. <laughs> what's your current word count? That kind of that kind of shaming. Be Could horrible. leave you on red. <laughs> oh, God. There's two blue ticks, mate. Oh, no. <laughs> um. So then, so yeah, so it'd be really cool if um, some people that were listening wanted to give this a crack and write along with this. Like, even if you can't, even if your job means that you can't do 50,000 words in a month, just this idea of giving it, you know, giving it a go along with this, that could be fun. We could do it as a community. But what we'll be doing on, on the episodes that we're going to be putting out in November, we're, they're going to be, they're going to be pretty quickly turned around because they'll be drawn from what's actually happening in that month. Yeah. Um, kind of like a tour diary. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. We're we're going to be the idea is Nico and I are going to be um, supporting each other through it, and the whole thing is going to uh, each episode you're going to get updates on how we're doing. Um, we're hoping that we might be able to get some guests on to talk about their processes, either in past Nanorimos or if they're doing this particular Nanorimo. Um, that might be that might be fun, you know. Some some of the authors that we have on that we've had on in the past might well have done NaNoWriMo so um, it's a pretty exciting concept that and then um, also we'll be uh, w probably workshopping some excerpts from the working processes that we're doing um, so you'll be seeing like little slips of story thing, from us can't it, too? 
I mean, you said you've just literally said about trying not to go back, but you know, if you hit that wall, I, I can't imagine it'd be much better than being able to say, "Look, I've I've reached this point. Where would you go from here?" Because it's mm. not we're not necessarily then gonna follow that exact. You know, we we've got very used to writing to prompts, <laughs> so yes. if someone gives us an idea that we can then rumble around within the tumble dryer of the mind, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming out like a little shrunk jumper that you've <laughs> fucked. <laughs> but this sort of brings us to the the main main crux of this is that we've both got things that we're already sort of a little bit into. That I know it's definitely what I'm intending to work on a nano remo. Is it the same case for yourself? You're gonna use it to yourself or something new? Do you think? As of recording, I'm actually not sure. Um, this might well be done by the time that November rolls around. Um, so it's it's quite likely that um, I'd either be working on the second book on in this, mm -hmm. or um, if I've really hit a brick wall, then I'll be finishing this one. But I'll be sort of approaching it as a project. So this idea of 50,000 words, we've already sort of spoken about how it's it's kind of arbitrary. It's not really the length of a novel and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So in, it'll be more of a project for me, but I'll be I'll be aiming to do exactly the same thing that you're doing, which is that amount of words in that amount of time. Well, um, sure. Well, we have two unborn novels at very different points <laughs> at this stage. And uh, I thought, uh, that it would be quite fun to to read them out for you guys on the podcast, just a little taster, so you can see what we're working on that isn't short stories. Far indeed, indeed the opposite of short stories. The novels. Yes, but it's still, um, uh, you know, a creative writing piece, so hopefully you guys will like it. I'm going to make you go first, because yeah, you've, you you've done more of it than me. You're yeah. about to start writing the sequel, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh no, did I crow? That's awful. <laughs> he didn't crow, I'm just an arsehole. <laughs> yes, okay, I'll give it a go and we'll uh, and we'll see. Um, so, because this isn't a, uh, normally we jump straight in, but because this isn't a short story, it might require some actual sort of seating inside the larger context. Mine's quite simple in that, in that regard. This is a prologue to the novel um i'm not sure whether this will actually be in the novel in the end but i i enjoyed writing it and hopefully you'll enjoy listening to it so here we go far below the cobbles of colvin's maces they found her the cocktail's housing shaft which had provided her with respite from the finders now echoed with the sound of the tower's ethereal warning bells the noise cut keenly into her perception but did not eclipse her hearing seron knew only mages could hear it with fingers made clumsy by fear, she lit the candle by her pallet bed and delved into the drawstring pouch she had kept on her belt for three months. A trinket of brass tucked into a fold gave her a moment of hope, but she had known the pouch was empty, aside from that small reminder of her old life. Hope is an unfortunate reflex to the hunted. She swore softly and looked around at the simple rock-hewn room from her alcove. From the other bed in the room, she could hear the steady breathing of the cog-turner at his rest, each set of rooms that were given to Turners held space for a small family, though few had them. It was rare for a person to be willing to bind themselves to a Turner. Those Turners, their minds addled by the power wrung from them in the worksheds, didn't seem to mind on the surface. Yet what relationships they did have, they gripped with the same unrelenting strength 
they gripped the electrum handles of their cog station. She had felt a pang of shame for what she had done to secure her hiding place. One such half-lost Turner, who went simply by the name of Deacon, had been her landlord for those long months. A small spell had been sufficient to convince Deacon's withered mind that she was his sister, Rena, who had recently returned from the gorge. It had been the last spell she cast before distributing the warding sand. That sand had blanketed Deacon's billets in a fog of anti-magic. Warding sand was rare, and she had been forced to hurt a low-level clerk of the finders, who had worked in the evidence storage, to get it before her escape. She had been willing to do whatever was necessary to get out, to get away from the tower. And yet, she realised, she had let this happen. Her awareness of her situation had been dulled by the sand. As her wits had slowed, she had let her store of sand dwindle, whilst no other plan dawdled long enough in her mind to become tangible. And now, the finder's ravens had clearly found her. They did not like it under the earth, which had been the initial reason behind her hiding place within the Turner's shaft. Yet their scent of her magic had not dulled in the months since she had fled the tower. The finders and their ravens had waited patiently for her to make a mistake. Damn her hands, she had obliged. Rena, what alarum has sounded? Deacon had risen from his pallet, rubbing sleep from his eyes. Uh, I have not heard it since. I forget when. Uh, though I recall the sound. From his ability to hear the finder's warning bells, she suddenly knew his potential must have been excessive as a child. She wondered that, had he been born into a family with money, perhaps he would have found himself in the tower alongside her. Perhaps, had she been born poor, she would have instead joined him at his electrum handles, with every turn of them ringing the sense from her head and the magic from her body. She turned to him and with a sharp wave of her hand, she broke the spell she had cast over his mind. Saron already feared that she had accelerated his mental degeneration. The cost of his remaining mental faculties now outweighed her hopeless situation. They had found her, and a simple cog turner was not going to be able to stop them. His reaction was slow to build, but gradually, he seemed to see her for the first time. Then, words formed on his lips. Now then, who are thee? But Charon was already busy slinging her few belongings into the leather carry sack and cinching it tight diagonally across her chest. She wore Deacon's old simple tunic and trousers, the uniform of a cog turner. Though she was not a match for Deacon's size and bulk, she was powerfully built from her years of training at the tower, and her belt took up the remaining slack in the clothing. Schillingstock had always said she could even make rags look good. It was one piece of his flattery she'd allowed to stay in her mind. And so, she stood proud for a moment, relishing the feel of danger. My name is Seron. I have abused you and your hospitality. For that I apologise, but I must leave now. She hesitated for a moment at the simple wooden door. When they question you, tell them I cast a spell upon you and use this warding sand to hide myself. You have done nothing wrong. With that, Saron threw open the door and plunged out onto the iron walkway. The small candle lantern above Deacon's door threw its light out around her and into the shaft beyond. Saron quickly grabbed the railing and craned her neck to look up and then down. The concentric circular walkways which ringed the interior of the cog turner's housing shaft spread away from her in both directions. 
A cold wind rose through the chasm, causing Deacon's door lantern and the thousands like it on the multitude of other walkways to flicker. The shifting shadows cast by the movement danced across the rock wall by her, and Saron felt a wave of vertigo wash over her. Saron could feel that her magic was still partially stifled by her abuse of the warding sand, but she knew she was out of time. With a quick movement of her hands, she braced her body for the battle. Her eyes, Chillingstock had once told her, were the deepest blue. As she cast the spell, however, the candlelight illuminated their change to a bright purple shot through with flickering orange shapes. A shimmer of power cocooned her visibly for a moment before settling on her form. Her protection in place, she began to do the only thing she could do. Saron ran. The pounding noise of her boots on the wrought iron walkway echoed out across the shaft gap as she ran towards the spiral stairway that would lead her up to the next level. It was never a good idea to look down whilst on the spiralling stairs. They were narrow, only wide enough for one man at a time to gradually ascend towards his working day. Between the wrought wells and the iron, the chasm below beckoned. Saron did not know how far they had dug in search of Electrum, but it was beyond the reckoning of her eyes. She took the steps quickly, stretching out her long legs and enjoying the exertion after so long cooped up in her hiding hole. She pounded up past tier after tier of Turner housing levels, hearing her heart beating hard in her ears as the blood pumped through her. Huge lungfuls of air kept her engine going. Somewhere in her mind, something clamoured for attention. That part which had been dulled in the Turner's billet was attempting to tell her something, and she stopped for a moment to try and comprehend what was happening. She couldn't hear the bells anymore. The stairway above her exploded in a shower of molten iron, as a quivering bolt ricocheted off her protective spell. She felt the dent in her magic like a fist thumping her in the gut. The stairway sheared and buckled under her weight, swinging her out into the darkness. She didn't have time to think before she jumped. Saron felt her legs move on instinct. The empty darkness below pulled at her as she leapt from the collapsing metal stairway. She landed heavily on the walkway one tier down and felt something in her ankles snap. Saron bit down on a scream and used the railing to scrabble up to her feet. The stairway she had been on was leaning out over the chasm at a wild angle. The metal where the bolt had struck above her was cooling rapidly into strange patterns, whilst the sports below where she had been stood were warped from her weight and the sudden impact. The next section of stairway hung waiting, inaccessible, twenty feet above her. A wave of pain emanated from her ankle and rose to her brain, making her dizzy. She closed her eyes for a moment and took a deep breath to master herself. Opening her eyes, Saron looked out across to the other side of the circular walkway that ringed this tier. The other stairway used by the Turners to descend after their shifts was still intact on the other side of the shaft. Standing in front of it, their hands spread wide, was a finder. Saron limped with as much pride as she could muster along the walkway towards the finder. Their robes looked practical. That was a bad sign, she thought. Most of the overconfident senior majors of the tower wore flowing full robes to add to their gravitas and hide their gut. This finder's attire made them look hungry and dangerous. Unusually, neither of their ravens were with them. The large beasts usually flanked finders during their searches. The finder's hood obscured their face, but she could see the glint of their eyes. She didn't need to see the colour to know this finder was a powerful mage. It radiated from them like heat, but she could also sense the hollowness of their power. She realised 
They must have allowed this finder to carry a rod on this mission. That hardly seems fair. I should warn you, I am trained as a battle mage, said Seron with a wry smile. The finder mage shrugged. Are you here to take me back? Seron could feel that she was being silly, playing for time with no plan. No. His voice was hard and sharp, like a butcher's cleaver. Well then, stand aside or I'll go through you. Seron tried to put as much menace into the threat as she could whilst drawing up her magic. The finder mage shrugged. Seron cast out a hand and, like a whip, the spell she had visualised lashed at him. The force of it striking his protection crackled into the air around them. With no time to be surprised at the strength of his protection, she struck again. This time he reacted and pummeled back at her. The blows landed like chops from that cleaver voice of his. She had felt her own protection waver almost instantly. Desperately, she flung both hands out and clapped them back in together. The net spell compressed their savage blows together, and the inverted force of the collision dragged them both towards each other. She heard the finder mage's boots whine over the wrought iron as he was pulled. The tread on her own boots also failed, her ankle sending large shouts of pain through her, and the two collided awkwardly. She felt his collarbone clack against the jaw and smelled the tower on him. With a moment of quick thinking that even Schillingstock would have found remarkable, she pushed a hand into the finder mage's robes. Her gambit immediately paid off as she tore the humming electrum rod from his belt. She felt the power of it seep into her, and giggled at the heady sensation. What did it matter that all these turners cast their minds away, when power could feel this good? Seron untangled herself from the finder mage and stepped back, the pain in her ankle forgotten. She smiled broadly as the immense power radiated through her. The rod felt glued to her palm by a kind of magnetism she could not explain. Seron looked at the finder mage and shouted triumphantly. She examined the face that held her jubilant gaze. His hood had been knocked back by their impact, and she saw he was handsome, younger than she had thought as well. His features, she thought, might be Iskin. She had expected to know his face, and feared it could be someone she would once cared about. Looks like you're fucked now, Saron crowed. The finder mage shrugged once more, and nodded at her chest. Saron looked down at the dagger hilt protruding from the centre of it. The power that had buoyed her flickered like a cogturner's guttering door candle. The rod slipped from her hand and clanked down on the iron walkway. Oh, said Saron, as blood welled up her throat. She stared back up at the finder mage. His eyes blazed for a moment as he drew back his hand. Please, uh, no. She tried to say, but the blood bubbled over her tongue instead. I shall feed you to my ravens. His voice, still hard and flat, was suffused with beleaguered breathing as his eyes shone. The finder mage struck out with his magic. It caved in the remnants of Saron's protection and blasted the side of her head off. The explosion of blood and brain matter misted out across the cogtenner's shaft and fell into the darkness. I tell you what, first of all, there are words in there I want to know more things about, which is always a really promising thing in a fantasy story. Yeah. If you, if you come away going, I want to know who a shilling stock is, I want to know what the fuck Electrum is, <laughs> what is it? What is a rod, who is his daddy and what does it do? <laughs> but 
like my first takeaway from it is it has a an absolutely seamless blend of the fantastical and the like real dirty gritty like the the necessary physics of doing things like mining in a fantasy world for a fantasy material mm. like the the idea that they're looking for electrum which sounds like i mean it's what the rod was made the, of the indication here is that it's um it's in this in this world in this in this setting it's uh conductive you know it's and and stores magic ah okay but yeah the but things like you know the the spiraling cast iron staircases and great big mining shafts and guttering candles and those are the touchstones that make or, or do I say that make that made and I'm assuming will continue to make that world feel real mm. so yeah. it had like a real you know like Moss Eisley the first time you see Star Wars it's got that oh, yeah. that nasty grimy everything like even with the magic it's it's really nice to have people throw magic spells and blow the side of someone's head off because all of a sudden yeah. magic has huge stakes when you do that yes there's there's very little uh delicate weaving i mean i guess there is a bit of weaving going on you know there is like a mental spell that she casts yeah at one point um yeah i'm sort of generally um mildly uncomfortable by like high fantasy and that's yeah um when when talking about high fantasy sorry um just because it's possible to not get it right quite easily yeah um and a big part of that you know a big part of anything that's got magic in it is like how strong your magic system is and like whether you go towards like the super over explained end of things or the the quite sort of like flowing um just sort of descriptive end of things um and obviously I'm going I'm more towards the descriptive end of things I think here um but I wanted it to have a really like hard payoff like a big punch yeah which is obviously what happens at the end there um I wanted it also to have a cost um there's a there's a bit where she says that she thinks that she's accelerated the mental degeneration of the the cog turner yes by messing with his mind and we know that his job is also addling his wits yeah permanently um or is the implication it's permanently and and then from that we know that there's thousands of others like him in this one shaft so it's it's a very sort of industrialized screwing people up to get whatever resource they want to get in this case magic a line about him uh you know if he'd been born differently Mm. the amount of magical promise he had could have been different so is there a is there a class element to it in your world? Um, yes, I think mostly um, uh, mo- mostly sort of money orientated, really, and and like fucking you know, Etonian where the wizards. Just say again, Etonian wizards. Is that what? <laughs> well, yeah, they're they're basically like that. It's very they're very um, elitist and yeah, and that kind of thing. Yeah, so this yeah this random bloke who clearly can do the job that requires you to be a little bit magic um could have theoretically been a a, a top mage or you know a, a good mage yeah in her estimation um yeah it's it's fascinating so just reading that out now like 
it was actually quite difficult to read that out. Um, this was the first thing that I wrote for the book. So it was sort of, it, it's very much a starting point. Uh, yeah. Trying to get the world right. And I said before I read it, that I'm not entirely sure it will actually go in the final thing. I, I, that's because I actually just, I sort of don't think it's good enough. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But uh, the, I, I think it possibly could be polished and, and either cut down or stretched out. Um, but this character of Seron is is important to another uh, main character um, in in the novel. So it's sort of it, it is important that it, you sort of see what happens to her and, and why, and perhaps gradually start to uncover why she's chosen to leave the tower, why she's being hunted by the Finder Mages, what the hell a Raven is. You know, you were talking earlier about words because yeah. um, there's the indication that they're not. Not birds, no. Yeah. Um, the um, <laughs> just like to say hello to uh, all of you huge Benjamin Holroyd Dell, the author fans in the year twenty thirty one, who've come <laughs> looking for that podcast, what he used to do before he was a famous writer, to find the lost prologue from the first book in the series. <laughs> You're welcome. You've had it. <laughs> we don't talk ever since the incident. Our marriage fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> Even I'm not arrogant enough for you to keep that bit in, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not cutting it, and we're leaving this bit in about me not cutting it because I'm I'm wishing success on you. That's what I'm doing right here. Oh well, I, you yeah, didn't I say it, so it's fine. <laughs> so to sort of give people a bit of a prelude, however, to how we're going to do these bits in November, like what how what do you make of like the the tone, the style, you know, things like that? Like are there ways that bits that I can improve? If you had sense. said this is chapter one, yeah, I don't think it would have worked quite as well as you saying this is the prologue. If you get the, what I mean, the character died in the first in the in the last paragraph. No, that I don't mind, but it's it it does a very prologue-y thing, of in you know, it it's it, imagine you're cooking the meal and I walk in and you scooped a bit out of the pan. You went try that for me. Oh. Oh, yeah that's nice i like that and you say good i'll bring you your meal when it's finished mm. so now i'm intrigued about the meal but i haven't eaten the meal and it's it does that very well but without the context of the book especially where you said you know that world has grown a lot it it would have worked as a short story on the podcast and I, I almost think it it wouldn't have worked as a short story on the podcast. Like, possibly not because of the it, promise of how much it's leading into and not explaining, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really deliver anything inside the, you know, in the same way that a short story does, in, inside yeah. that amount of words. Um, yes, um, so, the, so the point of it, I mean, the, there is some debate about whether you should have prologues in your books anyway, um, rather than just sort of get, getting down to it and, you know, getting stuck in, uh, etc., but in particular with a fantasy novel, you can sort of see why, like, the intention of this piece is to try and get people excited about the bits and pieces that are going to build into the world. Um, it's, I mean, functionally, it does a lot of very important things. It tells us about Electrum, which, as you say, is a real thing, but like, I didn't know what the fuck it was. <laughs> so we know it's, that is an important element in this universe. It tells us that magic is a thing, that it's very powerful, the wizards stab people... Like there are lots of little things. So instead of you having to do a a big bit of 
Why can I not remember the word? Uh, they love what it in it? the Game of Thrones TV show. Oh, um, uh, law dumping. <laughs> yeah, big old mm. law dump. I was trying to say well, the clever I think word. the actual word they use for the for the Game of Thrones one is sex position. Yes, sex um, position. Yeah, it's you know where you put a hooker and you say bits of world plot <laughs> about the while you're behind them. It was an yeah. interesting creative choice. Let's let's say that <laughs> we call it the Baelish maneuver. <laughs> so I oh, know that's sitting in a chair and doing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you kind of have two options with a world with as much scope as it sounds like yours is promising, which is to say, you know, have a character. And then they're walking along and someone says, wow, is that an electrum rod? Yes, it sure is. Wow, how much magic power is it storing? But instead, you just like blind throw someone in aggressively with, oh, oh God, he's got a rod. And we don't really know what that is, but we go, oh, that's probably bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like <laughs> and then, you know, he's got a gun moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I've got to say as well, love, lovely character moment for her to be like, yes, I got the rod. But that that mage guy to have stabbed her it's such a non-wizard thing i really dig it yeah yeah no he's like, this guy's clearly yeah. ruthless <laughs> <laughs> i i did that i did that unfortunate thing because you know i love i love a good bad guy yeah uh, where I, I i wrote a uh, bad guy that i liked a lot so <laughs> it had to he had to do something like that um he obviously turns up again um in a big way but uh they yeah, it, it's... Bar. just saying. No, I completely blew the side of her head off. I didn't even mean to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, so it was that the intention with the rod thing was uh, obviously that came from an idea of like trying to figure out a way to do like a wizard's wand, but give it some societal impact. So we know yes. that there's some sort of link between how they get magic into the rod and how the cog turners are an oppressed working class. Yeah. Um. So there's so you 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 were saying is there um is there a class I mean there's definitely class in here yeah um it's just a bit different and some of it's allegory and some of it isn't yeah okay um this this might be a weird question but have you got a name for the book yet um the the concept yeah basically I think I think the first one is. It's definitely going to involve the word recalcitrant. Okay. Um, of so course it is. So I think it might just be, it's something like the recalcitrant might be the, the first one. Um, or that might be the name for a, because the, I don't think you can really start writing a, a fantasy book nowadays without thinking about how it's going to be a trilogy. The recalcitrant. I can't even say it. The recalcitrant <laughs> trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's definitely got and like you could do like a, a full Stephen King thing and say the first one's called the Tower and then go that way or I don't know it, it, in all honesty I, I don't know I don't know what the uh, what the title is yet but the Rod the Rod yeah I asked because uh, that you know the, the what I'm going to read I haven't even got a fucking the tiniest inkling of an idea what to call it and mm. I'm normally really quick with naming things. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad sign that I don't know what I want to call it. So I just wondered, you know, what was your process like for naming this, by the way? Did it, is it something in world that you'd named and you thought, yeah, that would sit well as a title or? Um, so I wanted to come up with um, a, so, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of cyberpunk. Yeah. Um, 
So the initial concept grew from this idea of law punk. Um, okay, I like it. Which might be already some, you know, some people, some people may have already come up with it. Um, I guess. Uh, I don't know whether this is something that somebody else has already done in terms of, you know, talking about the genre and the subgenre. But I would say that this is a subgenre of low fantasy called law punk. Yeah. Um, and it's this idea of. Um, so, you know, if you have like subpunk or biopunk, that's where that's what the world turns on is the first word. So the in biopunk, it's like interesting biological processes like growing, yeah. like, you know, GMO crops and all this kind of shit. And cyberpunk, it's like uh, cyber technology with the arms. So in this, it's uh, the idea is that it's like folklore and magic are what the world turns on. So it's like, I guess another word for it would be magic punk. Um because it's also sort of very much like against the system, uh, which yeah. is a, it's a, a classic thing. That's where you get the punk thing from, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I was sort of thinking, you know, what is, you know, if there is an established magic thing, and then the, the word recalcitrant just sort of came to me. You know, it means to sort of step away from an organization and or get yeah. out of it. Um, oh, spoilers. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. Well, we, not really. I mean, you can see that Seron is already a recalcitrant mage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, high magic, low life is the is the tag there. I think. Um, so that's that's how I came up with the. So I actually came up with the name for it before I started writing it. Oh, wicked! Um, which is the other way around for me. Normally, it's the normally it's the reverse. Yeah, and then gradually, as what the hell am I going to call yeah, it? Yeah, and it, gradually, as I've drilled more into it, that that title has become maybe less likely, maybe more likely. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, it's um, it's 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 a bit of fun. Like, I think it's got some, I think it's got some legs. It's it, it's got some action. It's got some world building. It's got perhaps puts people on, on a hook. Wait, you know, wanting to find out more about it, and hopefully, it does all those things. Um, I would say it's not. I wouldn't say it's necessarily finished. Um, but it's okay, yeah, it's it's had it's had some edits, but yeah. So that's that's where we're at with it. I mean, this is it's so different. We're in sort of deep water in a way, aren't we? It's so different to talking about short stories because it's. I, I mean, I'm hit by an overwhelming desire to read more of it, which is probably a good thing for you. Yes, but it's uh, <laughs> it's probably really unsatisfying for all of you listeners. That's because... that's my that's my worry. Because I can yeah. just go in Ben's house and read it. So, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> oh, he's not going to let me. He's right, gonna okay. Me, he's going to ban me from buying it <laughs> so that I can't <laughs> read it till after you all have. Uh, so I've uh, I've bared my uh, project soul. So it's it's time for you to do the same, my friend. Oh. All right. This is as yet untitled. Chapter 1, in which two horrible little gits rob a corpse. The point of the stick hovered perilously, like some slinking predator, above the gleaming breastplate of the human soldier. With a jutting motion, the wood bumped angrily off of the metal surface, bowing slightly as the force behind it was met by the human's impressive mass. Is it dead? Scab's voice chirped like a swallow drowning in syrup. His beady eyes flashed along the length of the fallen man, 
from his well-worn leather boots to the jagged stump that stopped right where his beard used to start. Yeah, I think so. Prig nodded solemnly. He was, after all, of the pair at least, the most versed in human behaviour. This one hadn't even sworn at him when he'd prodded it. It was most likely dead. Scab scampered the half-dozen feet to where the human's head was buried in the snow. One eye drooped onto the cheek below the socket, a small amount of jelly oozing from it like an overripe fruit. The clamour of death was freezing in delicate jagged lines on its cheeks and brow, the early morning chill enveloping the skin, pulling it taut. He's definitely not well. He's gone all blue-like. Scav nodded at his own sage wisdom, looking down at his mottled green skin for comparison. Very pale, yes, and he's gone and dropped all his blood everywhere. They need that, humans do. Prig leaned into his train of thought. It keeps them warm. Maybe he died of a snow because of dropping all his blood. That makes sense. The goblins exchanged a glance before looking back at the breastplate and boots, then at the various pouches on his belt. Shall we rob him? Scab asked. Yeah, go on, Prig replied. Scab and Prig were two of your perfectly average common or household goblins, which to say that by the standards of normal right-thinking folk, they were loathsome, grubby, ugly little gits. Being average goblins did very little to make them in any way alike. Scab was a sickly green colour, except he had some sort of off-green bits that his mum had assured him didn't make him wrong, just special. His fingers were long and thin, expertly designed for reaching to hollows in trees to extract insects, or for choking the last breath out of an unsuspecting child. Prig, on the other hand, was plump, and appeared moist and sticky at all times, like a conscious mound of overproved dough. They did have a few things in common, greedy eyes set too deep in their faces, cruel hooks noses, and, most importantly, a lust for violence and other people's belongings that set them apart from other right-thinking people. They were not evil, but almost certainly unkind. Really, just nasty little buggers but at least they had each other. Scab shook the bag he'd yanked from the dead man's belt. It jangled softly. That's nice, he thought, as he pulled the bag open. It was filled with more of those little discs. Some were shiny and yellow, some shiny and orange, and some were even shiny and grey. Scab poured them onto the floor and checked the bag for anything more interesting. Finding it to be devoid of any food or treasure, he cast the leather aside. These humans seemed obsessed with flat bits of metal. He must have poured out thousands of these stupid flat discs as they worked their way across the battlefield. As he leaned into rummage around the man's codpiece, you could find all sorts in one of those. He looked up to watch Prig rolling one of the shiny pieces around in his hand. What are these? Scab kicked at one of the mounds of jangling discs, sending a couple skittering away across the snowy rocks. Prig lifted his eyes from the coin and took a deep breath. His brain cogs were spinning at a hell of a rate. 
The smoke of his thought process threatened to leak out of his ears at any moment. Well, they sort of memories, you see. Prig had fixed his train of thought in place, its wheels grinding against the meaty bit where his head connected to his pudgy body. If you was to take a look at one of them, say this yellow fellow, he flashed a piece of hammered gold at Scab before spinning it to face him with the backside. The heavily mustachioed face of the Emperor stared stoically out of it. His brow set heavy, as though he contemplated the weight of the entire world. Yes, I was looking now. Scab scrabbled and found a yellow disc in the snow. Well, see that bloke? He is their dad, uh, and when they miss him, they do little pictures of him, see? But he's all the same, Scab interjected, really uncertain about this one. Well, well, yes, Prig swallowed. But they do loads of them, don't they? So they're very good at it now. And these grey ones? He flashed a glance at the heavy bosom of the Empress. The artist seemed to have put a lot of work into getting that into the picture. Maybe so you could tell it was a lady one. This is their mum. And uh, the brown ones? This copper coin was turned in his hand, revealing a simple drawing of the grand throne in the Imperial Palace, its high back dotted with jewels. These brown fellas dashed their house. I see they miss all of that, see? Prig stopped speaking and his brain settled back into a mound of gelatinous fudge. He'd been using it an awful lot since he met Scab, both of them wandering their way south like a pair of aimless birds in winter. Ow! Scab took the coin he'd been using to root around in his nostril out of the gunkfield cavity. Little flakes of half-frozen filth cascaded from the orifice. That's very strange. Weird, these humans, ain't they? Prig could only nod in agreement. They were bloody weird. These ones have been incredibly careless. A little bit of snow, and they'd all slipped over, dropping their blood. Still, at least that meant they didn't need all their stuff anymore. Prig needed it, though. Uh, Scab, too. A bit, if he was honest about it. But he wasn't a massive fan of sharing, though. The company had been nice, but that was about the extent of it. There was a sound. Something snapping a short way off. Prig froze in place. His podgy face paled slightly. Oh, bugger, Prig muttered. Something here was alive and moving about. That absolutely was not the plan. He rummaged quickly through what he'd found on some of the humans. Some dried meat, a bit of hard cheese, a stick that made a nice noise when you turned it over, like rain pattering on a leafy canopy. And then he pulled out his most important find, a long, cruel-looking knife. The end was slightly hooked, ideal for gutting an enemy, but terrible for getting it out of your belt loop. That's how Prick had found the man, He'd clearly struggled so much unhooking the thing that he hadn't noticed how much of his blood he was dropping. And whoops, another dead human. Terrible waste, really, but a good knife for Prig. So in his mind altogether, an average turn of events. Hefting the dagger like a bastard sword, Prig motioned to Scab to arm himself. Scab watched Prig gesticulating wildly. He was concerned. Holding that whacking great sword in one hand and wobbling his other pudgy arm around like that was guaranteed to end in disaster. Scab scrunched his brain up for a moment, 
There was a chance, a slim one, but a chance nonetheless, that Prig was trying to tell him something. And it might be something important. What? Scab crawled across the clearing. Prig went a funny colour, and his free hand stopped flapping, finding its way to his face. Scab was very confused. He'd only asked a simple question. He was further confused at the sudden sound of crunching snow behind him. The confusion was elevated to an almost spiritual level when the sensation of an enormous steel-toed boot manifested at the back of his head. The scenery around him shifted suddenly. The ground, deciding it didn't want his feet anymore, began to rush underneath him, before sort of changing its mind and instead coming up to meet his face. Which really bloody hurt. Prig watched Scab sail gracelessly towards him. He landed with a thump, luckily absorbing the majority of the impact with his bony face. The human, for that's what it was, stood where Scab once had. One of its arms was missing, and it was dropping an awful lot of blood without it there to hold it. Its eyes were wide and wild, darting between the fallen bodies of the other soldiers, and the two horrible little gits that had been robbing them. Wordlessly, he reached down and plucked the sword from next to the body Scab had been rummaging in. He hefted it gently in his remaining hand, as though testing the weight, before locking those mad eyes on Prig. Oh, ass, said Prig. My face hurts, said Scab. Die, monsters, screamed the man, rather rudely in Prig's opinion. The man's feet blurred into motion. There would only be a matter of seconds before he'd covered the ground between himself and the goblins. Each of his footfalls crushed through the layers of frost and bit hard earth with a resounding crunch. His knees buckled slightly as he pressed on, the loss of blood and adrenal surge throwing his body into awkward spasms. The goblins had scarce moments to prepare themselves. Prig turned his foot to the side as though to have better purchase. Then, spinning his not inconsiderable body weight on it, he began to leg it. Scab continued to lament his fate. This did not, however, last long, as the human, its cold blue eyes locked on Prig's back, stood on Scab. You bah! The scream tore itself from Scab's lips as the man lost balance, his enormous weight and collapse into exhaustion sending him hurtling down to the goblin's level. In desperation, the man threw his remaining arm out to catch himself the weight of the plate mail snapping his arm like dry kindling. The man shrieked. The sword he'd been wielding jutted awkwardly from beneath his hip, a pool of crimson slowly staining the snow around him. He began to whimper softly as Scab and Prig drew level with his head. They looked down at him curiously. Uh, good work, Scab. Prig nodded at his companion. Yeah, um... On purpose and everything. Scab rubbed his back where he could feel the tread marks from the man's boot. He didn't know what a hobnail was, but he was certainly hated the things. The man was shaking a lot. Should we, um, sort of like, poke its head with something? To make it less, uh... Disgusting? Yeah. Prig hefted the curved dagger. Planting his feet firmly, he lifted it like an executioner. The man closed his eyes and whispered a prayer to whichever gods he held dear. With a solemn exhale, Prig threw his weight behind the blade, thwacking the forehead of the victim firmly with its blunt backside. 
You awful little shit, the man managed to utter, before his eyes rolled back into his head and the realm of the dead took him at last. Prig looked down at the long red welt he'd created across the man's noggin. Not bad work by his standard. He bonked the same spot again. This time the man didn't swear at him. Almost certainly dead. As Scab and Prig rummaged through his clothing, they felt very nice, warm and soft, like a duckling on fire. Today really had been an excellent day. They'd won a fight with a great big human, at Prig made a mental note about today's findings, one-armed humans prone to tripping over. That could be useful to know. They'd found at least three days' worth of tasty snacks, and even a couple of trinkets they could make use of. And most importantly, they had a vague direction to follow now. These humans were making a lovely path somewhere. That was where they'd head to. The orc bowman took the shard of seeing glass away from his eye. The polished sides of the crystalline substance glinted softly in the sunlight. Turning to his companion, he chuckled darkly. Oi, crud. I think I found dinner. <laughs> uh, I, I actually couldn't imagine a more Nico story. <laughs> um, you know, you've, you've loved orcs and goblins for as uh -huh. long as I've known you. And it's it's really fun to see them so well realized in your uh in your uh, creative voice, I think. Um the uh the you know the uh scab and prig are just are just uh, like yeah, horrible little shits, aren't they? Like it's just yeah. it, it's, <laughs> it's dreadful. It's great. It's dreadful little sods. But like that that perspective that you're bringing to it, that like that angle on the world is really interesting. Um and and really engaging as well. This, you know, um, you get a lot of short stories written, written like or, or poetry even written like it, where the aim of the game is to try and figure out what what the narrator is actually talking about. Yeah. Um, and then I think you tread a line there where the narrator is far better informed than the characters, so we know that obviously. Yeah, but then sometimes it dips into being on their level, and sometimes being sort of a bit sardonic about goblins. Yeah. Um, so I would say, like, so we, we we talk about Pratchett a lot, but like a good example of this in Pratchett is like the normal narrator, and then the the asterisks. Yes. Leading to the bottom. Are you? Is there a formatting thing where you do that? At it's all always during... bracketed. It's always bracketed. There we go. Okay. Yeah. yeah because I was going to say, I think, I think if the prose read like that, it might become a little bit confusing narrator wise as yeah. to what's happening. So then do you have basically two narrators? Do you have a, a narrator doing the incidental stuff where Prig did this, Scab said that? Yeah. And then you have the incidental comments on what's happening in brackets. Yeah. It's, uh, they, they kind of fall like asides, don't they? Where, Especially in the formatting, where it's like it's stopping you to say, just for a bit of context, this is this is what goblins are like, or you know this, you know, it, it's almost like a way, like almost a cheating way, isn't it, to add a bit of real world context in a lot of places. Yeah, but but I think I think it's actually I think it could be a really powerful um, storytelling tool for what you're doing there. Um, 
I feel like brackets might be a little bit uh, clunky after a couple of pages. Yeah. Um, so possibly like italicizing it or something would be quite interesting. I wonder whether they should be able to hear it, but not really get it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's sometimes yeah. when a character can hear a narrator. Um, or whether other people that meet them can hear this narrator taking the piss out of them. But they can't hear it. It's something like that, you know, something to yeah. yeah, deepen the joke a little bit. Because I like I really like the joke and I think it would work well on work well on, on the page and and the jokes work well when you read them out as well. It it happens less as it goes on. You know, I've got sort of five or six chapters written. Um but that's, that's it, you start to see it through other people's eyes who are having a very similar thought process. But, you know, there thus far there's uh, some orcs, some humans, some dwarves, and their takes on the goblins are all different. And it does shift that narrator voice slightly when they're in the scene. And I think that first scene, because it didn't have a witness to these dreadful little sods, mm. it, it became the narrator voice. So it's, my, it's something that may change as the story goes on, I think. I, I think it would almost like, I think if it's, because it's the way that it's happening in that first bit, I think it would be good to see it happen in the rest of it. But as you yeah. say, maybe it takes a bit of a back step when, so so you'd have, rather than it being like every paragraph, you might be, it might, the frequency of it, of it increases as the goblins draw near people and then decreases as they, as they leave them. Um. So like the goblins talking, sorry, the, the orcs talking to each other might not have it very much until there's a comment made about the goblins and then this specific goblin narrator who thinks they're little shits and kind of funny just sort of weighs in. Yeah. So you've almost got like, as I said earlier, like you've got like a, a main narrator that's doing the traditional narrator role in the prose. It could be really interesting to sort of have the two narrators at loggerheads couldn't it yes. as well yeah totally you know the, yeah. the goblins do something vaguely heroic and yeah. for the the off narrators to be like, you don't really think that sort of out like counterbalances everything else they've done yeah exactly of course yeah. it does that's how heroes work do not refer to them as heroes i think well but yeah i mean you go creatively whichever way you'd go yeah. i think initially like it, it might almost work better to have the the normal narrator not be able to interact yeah, but definitely the the top that kind of like almost like characterful goblin narrator be able to be like that. Well, that's not right. They, they, they just don't oh, know what they're doing. And they were heroes. They weren't. They weren't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So people get used to when they see that that those italics, they get used to the tone of the way that you're telling that story yeah. in a very similar way to uh, you know when when you're reading a um, a Discord book and you see the the uh, full caps. The full capital letters, and you're like, "Oh, death's coming." You know he's here, yeah. Yeah, he's here, yeah. Um, and you and you have a voice for him in your head, and all that kind of stuff. I think you've got. I think you're really onto something there because it sounds like it sounds very unlike anything any other fantasy I've ever read, um, where you're taking the sort of like the scum uh, fantasy race in in goblins, and it sounds like you're doing like a the story progresses them through the various other fantasy races. Yes. Getting into various scrapes, getting out of them, likely through however they sort of bumble the way out of them like they did in the first bit. Um, and it's always about how their, you know, it's their story. So yeah. I assume, 
I, I'm, I'm really excited about this idea because it sounds like, and I'm sure you've already done this, which is that it sounds like they're going to be like coming across people on grand quests or whatever. Yes. And, and then that story just goes on without them and they, <laughs> they carry on bumbling. I, um, straight into chapter two. I, yeah. I won't read the chapter, but it's, it's this huge orc warlord who's having a mid-war crisis. <laughs> where he's, uh, you know, he's on this massive orcish crusade through the human kingdoms and he started to think you know there's got to be more to life than this <laughs> you know how what what make do i make peace like is that what we do now because i don't really feel like i'm in this anymore oh, that's wonderful all the yeah. way I, like that kind of humor and that kind of outlook uh, approaching the fantasy genre i think that's going to be really readable i think it's going to be like not just readable but like really enjoyable and funny it's going to be laugh out loud i laughed a bunch of times in particular, I liked, I liked um, "warm and nice, like a duckling on fire." That's that's a quote, man. That, that's a, that's an excellent excellent bit of writing. Um, well, I'll keep that one then. <laughs> yeah, I think keep that one. Um, I do occasionally write a joke and then sit back and go, "Is that too weird? <laughs> Am I too weird?" No, that's that's spot on. I would say that's bang on tone for yeah. both you and this book. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I want to see more of it. Like, it felt like I think you're in a, probably in a similar position to me, where you've where you've written it and then edited it a bunch of times, but it's not quite finished. Um, because there's there's just I I think what I'm missing is actually reading it on the page. Yes. The, that because now that I know that it's formatted differently, it's probably undoes a lot of the issues that I had with it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I'm actually I'm I'm quite interested to to read it because there there is a sort of a disconnect when you're reading it out, I think. Um, but that makes more sense now we've talked about it. And yeah, I think this does it does lend itself more to being read than being having it read to you, mm. which Definitely. is interesting for you, I, I would say. Like yeah, um, because you're such a talented narrator and you've got you know a a great uh, a great voice for it and really good. Um, intonation addiction and stuff like that that sometimes i know we've spoken before on the podcast that you your short stories are specifically written to be performed yes uh because that's the medium that we're writing for and that's that works doesn't it yeah. so it's interesting that you've in in your in your novel project it's actually the opposite like i i like that i think you know it's a, it's a really professional approach to it Let's oh, hope wow. it works. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's going to be good. So is your intention to, to carry on with that during this uh, NaNoWriMo that we're doing? Yes, there's cool. about 15,000 words. Okay. Which is not enough, mm -hmm. obviously, but with NaNoWriMo, that could be moving towards, you know, sort of 60, 70,000 words, which would be almost a book. And then I write another sort of 80,000, then we delete <laughs> 50,000, and then we, you know, go back and forth forever and always. I quite like the idea of it being like a slim volume, like, you know, that sort of bridge between teen lit and adult fiction Yeah. in fantasy. I think it would fill that role really nicely um, with the kind of humour. But then maybe it would go over the heads. Mm, yeah, maybe. That's it, It's got a lot of potential in so many different ways that you could take it. Yeah. Like, what an exciting project. I think that's I think that's really cool. But yeah, if anyone's got suggestions for names, feel free to tweet them at me. Because <laughs> I don't know what to... It's, you know, the document's called Prig and Scab, but I do not think you could call a book that. I don't... 
Well, maybe you could. You never know. Sometimes <laughs> you can. Sometimes you can get away with, you know, names that stand out on uh, pages. Um. Oh, sorry. On um, on bookcases. Sorry. I'm trying to think. Um. The only other thing that I've read that's like this, and it's not in the same way as you know the the comedic tone that you've gone for, is the book Orcs by Stan Nichols. Yes. Um, where it's from the point of view of a war band of orcs basically in trouble. Yeah. Um, and that was great. I really enjoyed seeing it from a different perspective. Um, so now with this added layer of the comedy aspects and it's sort of a bit of a deconstruction of the genre, a bit of a bit of a pastiche of the genre, isn't it? This, the way that you've actually inverted the narrative. Yeah. Um, I think that's fascinating. I think you've got. I think you're really onto something there. I think the, the the thing that makes it fun is that everyone else in this world has the same level of dramatic irony that we do, because they're all aware of the conflicts and, you know, the sort of traditional position for these races. Mm. But these these two just don't know. <laughs> they don't know who's friends. They don't understand like what's happened on a battlefield where the people have clearly been slaughtered. It's yes. It's just quite fun to me, the idea of these two walking around with no idea at all what they're getting into. Maybe it's because that's how I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, my, just before we move on, there was a bit where they... Um, I really like all the stuff about the, the coins and not knowing what they were and our coins, memories. and Yeah. That was really cool. There was a bit where there was a description of them not finding treasure. Did... Did I miss it, or did you did you then define what they classified as treasure? That come that is described later. Okay, it might be worth doing that inside that first bit. Okay. Um, somehow, or at least at least hinting towards what they would consider treasure. Um, I know I made mention of the rain stick in that bit. Yeah, they liked the the rain. Yeah, the rain stick. That was that was fun for them. I have a a little bit later on about how. Goblins, they love stuff. Anything that makes a noise is pretty good. Anything <laughs> shiny but without a function, they like. So, so why, would, it... why wouldn't they like coins then? Oh, that's a point. Yeah. See, they really want the gem off the top of a sword later, but they don't want the sword, even though it's a magic sword. They don't, they don't care about that. They just want the gem. <laughs> I think from a world-building perspective, it's an idea to really nail that and yeah. like screw it down. Uh, so that all the jokes hold it hold true through it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was my that was my only that was my only bit of uh, that and possibly changing it to italics. Yes. I like it. Um, I'm I'm really excited for you, man. That's we'll keep at it. Yeah, definitely keep at that. I'd I'd like to I'd definitely like to read more of it. Well, I guess uh, there we go. We've had two stories. Um, both are sections of a story, rather than. Uh, a full, complete short story, but hopefully you enjoyed the storytelling and the uh, the promise of what's to come. Um, we'll be doing similar stuff in November, won't we? We will. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, yeah, um, we hope you enjoyed what you heard. Do feel free to tweet at us, which is at Bookcase Tiny. Uh, you know, if you've got any comments, any criticisms, let us know if you're going to be joining in. And you can also tweet at NanoRemo, which is N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. Uh, that's the official Twitter for NanoRemo. So, you know, let them know you're joining in. Let us know you're joining in. And God, let's all write some books together, gang. Definitely write some books together. Um, 
and uh, you can create the uh, on their website nanorimo.org you can create your uh, you know create your account and log your project and you can um, keep track of how many words you've written each day and it gives you some cool charts on like now how much you have to write in order to keep on track or this kind of thing you can get really into it if you're a bit of a data freak like we are so we'll see you guys next week with another normal episode but uh we hope you enjoyed this so brace yourself for quite a lot more of it in november and we'll see you back next week novels Novels. (laughs) thanks for joining us for this episode of the tiny bookcase remember to subscribe otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at BookcaseTiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at BookcaseTiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For Rich Ginger Tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?